Amen. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 25. All I can tell you is that preaching is a strange thing. Preaching is not teaching if you're in a classroom and and the teacher gives you a syllabus at the beginning of the class and says, we're going to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and we're going to make our way through this book, and by this date we're going to be done and you're going to have an exam, then you would be surprised if he got through chapter 2 and into chapter 3 and then backed up. But preaching is different from teaching, and all I can tell you is that um, as I've thought back over these last several months, while I know we touched on this passage I just really felt convicted, I guess, this last week that we needed to give a little bit more attention to it before we move on to the summary that Paul gives to us beginning in verse 9 of chapter 3. So, for those of you who watch ESPN, pardon the interruption, we're backing up. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And this is the critical part. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us, help us, help us. Help us by your Spirit. Please help us. Help us that we not push the truth of your word away. Help us that we not stay on the surface. Help us to see that because of your love for us, you want to drill down beneath the surface to the depths of our souls. Give us grace this morning to hear your voice, to hear your word. Give us courage to go there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller, this is a book that some of you are reading uh, here at Christ the King. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller makes reference to Andrew Carnegie, whose company was the forerunner of United States Steel in, uh, in Carnegie's lifetime. Early on in his success, uh, he had become one of the most profitable and wealthy entrepreneurs, business builders in the world. And at age 33, he wrote this, at age 33, man must have an idol. Man must have an idol. He's simply acknowledging that that every one of us worships and worships something. Every one of us worships. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. There is no idol more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately. Therefore, I should be careful to choose the life 
which will be the most elevating in character. To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, that must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. Therefore, I will resign business at 35. But during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. Did you get that? Did you hear? Because he was more concerned at age 33 about character concerned about his character and because he was concerned that a preoccupation with business and business affairs and making the greatest amount of money in the shortest amount of time would be degrading to character, he resolved that he would resign from business at age 35 and in the interim two years, he would seek to improve his character. Now, you want to know the rest of the story? He didn't do it. He didn't do it. And in the latter years of his life, Andrew Carnegie built 2,059 libraries. A wonderful model of philanthropy. But here is what one steel worker said about Andrew Carnegie and his libraries. We didn't want him to build a library for us. We would rather have had higher wages. At this time, steel workers worked 12-hour shifts on floors so hot they had to nail wooden platforms under their shoes. Every two weeks, they toiled an inhuman 24-hour shift and then got their sole day off. The best housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. Most died in their 40s or earlier from accidents or disease. Do you wonder why there are labor unions today? I had a phone call this last week from a friend. We're really more acquaintances now, but at one point in our lives, we really were good friends. I was privileged to see him become a Christian 25 years ago. I was privileged to do his wedding 23 years ago. He called me to tell me that he had had an affair. And through his tears, as he choked out the words, he said, How did I get here? How did I get here? How did I get here? He didn't say... I've sinned, I know it, I repent, now I'm going to fix my marriage. He said, how did I get here? Tiger Woods this last week was apparently released from a program for sex addicts. Had himself admitted, apparently admitted himself to a program someplace in Mississippi to deal with a problem of sexual addiction. I have heard that Tiger Woods actually said, I hate myself. I hate myself. Now let me tell you something. 
those words, I hate myself, those words could be the most hopeful words that Tiger Woods has ever spoken in his life. Those words, I hope, I hope and pray that you will not fall prey to the cynicism which says, this is all about appearances. I hope and pray that you will pray for Tiger Woods. That those words would actually be a doorway into hope and change and real transformation for him. What is it about Andrew Carnegie and my friend and Tiger Woods? What is it about these people? Well, the reason I wanted to come back to this particular passage, and, and maybe, maybe it's just, maybe it's just because I've got a problem. <laughs> but I wanted to come back to this passage because in my heart of hearts, my deepest conviction, I say this humbly, I say it pastorally, I say it as lovingly as I can. You have not begun to take the gospel seriously until you can say at the very, very deep level, at the very core of your being, what Tiger Woods has said. I hate what I find there. I hate what I find there. You have not begun to take the gospel seriously until you have peeled back the layers and have said what the Apostle Paul says in this very letter to the Romans in chapter 7, verse 18, I know that in me, in my flesh, there is no good thing. Nada. Niet. Nothing. Nothing. Paul is giving us in this short passage three pictures. He's giving us a picture of a problem. And through that picture, he's pointing us to a picture of a deeper problem. And in this picture, he is pointing us to a picture of a deeper solution. He's using the imagery of circumcision in this passage. What is the significance of circumcision for Paul? Well, let's, let's just remember where he is very quickly as he works his way through this letter. Let's remember that what he's doing is arguing that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that all alike, that's what he's going to tell us in verse 9 and following, that all alike are under sin, under its dominion and under the threat of judgment because of sin. When he gets to chapter 2, the Jews who are listeners, who are hearing this letter being read, the Jews are saying, well, thank goodness I'm exempted from that. And Paul's argument in chapter 2 is simply to point out to the Jewish listeners who are sitting side by side with Gentile listeners as this letter is being read. What Paul is attempting to do in chapter 2 is expose the hypocrisy of those who are listening. And his argument runs basically like this. Look, 
And this is verses 1 through 11. Look, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the loving kindness and grace of God, the covenant-making God, this grace, this mercy, this kindness is to lead you to repentance. The grace of God is not to make you self-righteous. It's not to create a people who are guilty of what could be called an ethnic idolatry, worshiping your Jewishness. No, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God is to lead you to repentance. It's to lead you to a place of amazement that you are the people of God at all. He's seeking to expose their bad thinking and their faulty logic and their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy. And then in verses 12 to 24, he says, okay, you say you have the law. You claim to be teachers of others. You claim that you are a guide to the blind. But the Gentiles who don't have what you have, they live better lives than you do. They live better lives than you do. And beyond that, take a close look at how you live. You preach against stealing. You preach against adultery. You preach against all of these things, but you do these things. And yet you boast. You boast that you possess the law. And Paul cites the Old Testament in verse 24 of chapter 2 and says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of your hypocrisy. You claim your ethnicity. You claim that you have the law. And now he says, okay, you want to talk about circumcision? Well, let's talk about circumcision. And what he's doing as he talks about circumcision is destroying the final defense that they have. Because in the mind of the Jew who is listening, the Jew is thinking, the Jew who knows his Old Testament, the Jew who understands the significance of this act, this rite of circumcision, the Jew knows that this mark is a mark which designates, it's an external sign given to Abraham. You can go back to Genesis 17 and Genesis 15 before that to understand the significance of this act this rite of circumcision and what would have been in Paul's mind and what would have been in the mind of the Jews who were listening. This act, this rite of circumcision was the external act, which was a reminder to people of God's covenant with Abraham and of God's covenant favor toward the people who were descended from Abraham. It marked them off. It set them apart. You have to go really back to Genesis 15 before Genesis 17 to understand that Abraham, before he was given this mark of circumcision, was commended because he believed God. He believed God. He believed the promise of God. And in that believing the promise of God, he entrusted himself to God. He entrusted himself to the God who said something that was not fulfilled at the time. The promise was the promise of a son. The promise was the promise of descendants as numerous as the stars in the heaven. And here is Abram with a name that means father of many who doesn't even have one. His name was a humiliation to him. But God had spoken and God had made a promise. And in Genesis 15, 
it is recorded for us that Abram believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness so that when you come to Genesis 17, God gives him this mark, changes his name from Abram, which means father of many, to Abraham, which means father of a vast multitude. He still doesn't even have one. Now he has an even more embarrassing name, but he's given a sign covenant sign, a sign that God is resolved and determined to fulfill the promise that he has made to Abram. And that's what these Jews would have known and would have understood. They would have understood that every time a male child was circumcised, it was a reminder of God's promise. Every time a male child was circumcised, they saw in that child a fulfillment of the promise made to Abram. Descendants, numerous descendants. But here's what they forgot. They knew that it was a sign. They knew that every time a child was circumcised, a son was circumcised, that was a reminder that the promise had been fulfilled. But here's what they forgot. Here's what they missed. They missed that every time a son was circumcised in Israel, Every time blood was shed, every time the knife was applied, there was a scream and there was suffering and something was being cut away and removed. It's not that easy to talk about this in mixed company. (laughs) But if you're an Israelite living in that day and time, That is what you would have seen and heard. There was no anesthetic used. There was no numbing of the tissue. There was no minimizing of the pain. There was no avoiding the pain. When the knife was applied, there was a scream and there was bloodlet and something was cut away and removed. And what was being communicated to Israel, what was being communicated to Israel in that image and picture of circumcision is that there is a problem here. Yes, Houston. Yes, Houston. We have a problem. There's a remarkable passage, which I'd encourage you to read this week. This is your homework for the week. I encourage you to read Joshua chapters 5 and 6 because Joshua chapters 5 and 6 make this point powerfully and profoundly. Here's the sequence of things. Let me give you the sequence of things. I'm not going to read both chapters. don't have time for that. But let me give you the sequence of things in Joshua chapters 5 and 6. In the first part of Joshua chapter 5, there is an act of circumcision in which all of the males in the nation are circumcised. And what follows that is the celebration of Passover. And what follows that is an encounter which Joshua has with the angel of the Lord. And what follows that encounter between Joshua and the angel of the Lord is the beginning of the conquest in Joshua chapter 6. Now let's start at Joshua chapter 6 and work backward. What's happening in Joshua chapter 6? 
Well, what is happening in Joshua chapter 6 with the beginnings of the conquest is that God is seeking, call me, we'll have lunch, we'll talk about this, I'm okay with that. But what's happening in Joshua chapter 6 is that God is cleansing the land so that the land might become a holy land and a place for his name to dwell. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is righteous. He is just. He is pure. He is perfect. And if his most perfect, holy, righteous name, the name which is a summary of the totality of his being, if his name is going to dwell in that place, it's a place that has to correspond with his nature. If he is holy, it must be holy. It isn't. It is populated by Canaanites and Amorites and all kinds of people who do all varieties of foul and despicable things. And if you want to know more about it, please call me this week. These are not innocent people. These are people who offer their children to Molech. You've heard me talk about this in the past. These are not innocent people. And if the holy name of God is to dwell in this land, the land must be cleansed. And that is what begins in Joshua chapter 6. But just before that, at the end of chapter 5, Joshua has this encounter with the angel of the Lord. Joshua, who bears his sword, who is prepared to go into the land, Joshua encounters this angel, and this angel, full of glory, stands before Joshua, and Joshua says, Whose side are you on? Are you for us or are you for them? You know what the answer is that Joshua receives? No. No. And in that little word, God, through the angel of the Lord, is saying to Joshua, you're asking the wrong question, my friend. The question is not whose side am I on. The question is whose side are you on? I am the captain of the army of the Lord. Are you with me? The question isn't, am I with you? The question is, are you with me? And Joshua fell down and worshiped. See, it's always about loyalty. It's always about loyalty. We not only have things we worship, we are loyal to those things that we worship. We trust them, we love them, we obey them. Joshua understood what was going on. He fell down and worshiped. And what happened just before that? The Passover. What's the Passover? The Passover is the celebration, the celebration of Israel's deliverance. It's a reminder that they're a delivered people. It's a reminder that they were an oppressed people. It's a reminder that they were aliens and strangers in a foreign land. And when they go into this holy land, they are to be a safe place for anyone who will come. They're to befriend the alien. They're to befriend the sojourner. They are to be as liberal as God has been with them. But before they can come to the Passover, before they can bear their sabers to begin the conquest of the land, purifying it for the name of a holy God, what has to happen? They have to be circumcised. And you see, what had happened is that all of the males who came out of Egypt in the days of the Exodus 
had been circumcised. But from the time of the Exodus across 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, no males were circumcised. There were only two of that original population still alive, Joshua and Caleb. All of the other males in the country had been born in the wilderness and none of them had been circumcised. None of them had been circumcised. And if you read Joshua chapter 5, here is what God says. This is a paraphrase, but here is what God says to the nation. Circumcise all of the males. Why? Why? Because their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness is a function of the fact that they did not obey the voice of the Lord 40 years before. Their wandering in the wilderness is a function of their sin and rebellion. They are an unholy people. And before they can go into the land, presuming to cleanse the land for my name's sake and as a place for my name to dwell, they themselves must be cleansed. They have to be cleansed. And so circumcision, this rite of circumcision that was performed on all the males in the nation was a cutting, a symbolic powerful picture of the cutting and removal of sin and rebellion in the whole nation. They had to be cleansed. It had to be purged. They had to be purified. Now look, the cutting and removal of flesh, doing something external, doesn't get it. Okay? pause button here, just parenthetically, let me say this. That's why people can change their thinking and not change at deep levels. You can know the Westminster Confession of Faith backwards and forwards, inside and out. You can read and study and know doctrine. You can fill your head with all kinds of right notions. But external things don't get down beneath the surface. You can do all the right things. You can think all the right things or you can do all of the right things. You can modify your behavior. You can adjust things at an external level. I hope and pray that that is not what is happening with Tiger Woods. I hope and pray that he isn't just modifying his behavior, switching off the computer. He's got deep, he need computers. He can pay for the real thing. I don't mean to be indiscreet. That's what he's been doing. I hope he doesn't just modify his behavior. It doesn't bring deep and lasting change. Same with our emotions. We can look for experiences. We can, we can try to feel the right things and do things in order to feel the right things. That's still living at the surface, living at the surface of the mind and the will and, and the emotions. No, something has to happen much more deeply in our souls. Not a superficial thing, not a physical thing, not an external thing. Paul, through this picture of circumcision, this idea of cutting something away, removing something, something, something that involves the letting of blood, something that involves pain, something that involves 
suffering, the Apostle Paul is trying to take us back, take us down deep, exposing the depth of our need. And that's why he takes this picture of circumcision and presses it beneath, down into the heart. The heart. The heart's the control center. You ask, what is your heart? Just like the heart in your chest. The heart in your chest pumps life into the totality of your physical existence. Look, you can be brainless and still be alive. I'm a perfect example of that. Right? You can be a person of extremely limited capabilities and intelligence. I mean, really and truly, you can be brainless and still be alive, but you can't be alive without a heart. The heart is at the core of everything. It sustains everything. It pumps life out into everything. The Bible sees the heart as the control center beneath the mind and the will and the emotions and the totality of who and what you are as a human being. And Paul says, the circumcision that you need the circumcision that I need is a circumcision of the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? My friend said, how did I get here? How could I do this? How did I get to this place? Tiger Woods clearly got to a place where because of public exposure to be sure, but you wonder in the quiet of his own heart when he's sleeping in his own bed and he's alone, don't you suppose he's asking the question, how did I get here? Are you going to believe Jeremiah 17, 9 with me? Are you going to believe that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, that it is beyond understanding? That there are caverns down there that are loaded with all kinds of confused and disordered motives and desires that you don't even understand yourself. I said to folks this last Friday at the Women's Refuge, if I'm going to pray, if I'm going to come before God and try to deal honestly with God in the presence of God, the first thing I have to say to God is, I don't trust myself. I don't trust me. I need you to tell me what's true about me. Am I going to believe Jeremiah 17, 9? Am I going to believe Jesus when Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks? Matthew 12, 34. Am I going to believe Jesus when he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander? Matthew 15, 9. Am I going to believe, Jesus, that I've got a problem? It's deep. It's cavernous. It's my heart. And Paul is saying here, the picture that he uses points us to a deeper picture, the picture that each of us needs a surgical procedure performed on our hearts. And I can't do it. I can't do it to me. Have you all seen the movie Master and Commander? You all know that film? Russell Crowe film. It's, it's a great film. It's a story about a ship's captain and a ship's surgeon. The ship's surgeon is inadvertently shot by one of the Marines on the ship. 
There isn't anybody who can perform the surgery to remove the lead ball from his abdomen. So he performs surgery on himself to remove the lead ball. You can maybe do that with a lead ball, but you can't perform this kind of surgery on yourself. The surgery that goes deep to the core of who and what I am, it is a surgery, Paul says, that can be accomplished only, only by the Spirit. The Spirit performs this surgery. So you see, a true Jew whether Jewish or Gentile, here's the, here's, the, here's the deal. The true Jew, Paul is saying, the true Jewish person is a person in whose heart and soul this surgical procedure has been performed, a circumcision of the heart performed by the Spirit. Here's a question. Look, I don't, I don't care how long you've been around these things. I don't care if this is your first time in this church, your 30th, your 400th. I don't care if you've been around these things for five minutes or for five decades. Here is a question for you. Do I know? Do I have some real sense that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the infinite personal God who is really there, who knows me, do I have some sense that the Spirit of God has performed this surgery on me? That he has begun this work deep in the recesses of my heart of cutting out the cancer in my soul. That's what a Christian is. That is what a Christian is. A Christian is one who has some sense that this surgical procedure really and truly has been accomplished. Do you know that? Do you know that? If you don't, please find somebody who can talk to you about these things. Call me. I'm, I love talking about these things. This is what I need. This is what you need more than anything else. And a Christian is one who has been on the table, who knows that he or she has been on the table, who has felt at some level, has felt the pain, the suffering of the scalpel as the scalpel makes its incision from my neck to my navel and the chest is ripped open and the scalpel goes deep to cut out what is wrong with me. Do I know that at some level? That's the imagery that the apostle is using here. That is precisely the imagery, a circumcision of the heart. Now, let me tell you why you don't have to be afraid of that. Let me tell you why, whether you're seven years old 
or 77 years old. Let me tell you why you don't have to be afraid of that. You don't have to be afraid of that because this general picture of circumcision that points to the greater picture, the greater need of circumcision in the heart, those two pictures point to yet another picture. Those two pictures point to the true circumcision which is the true solution for you and for me. The true answer. Isaiah 53, 8. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That he was smitten for the transgressions of his people. What is the cross? The cross is the thing to which Old Testament circumcision points. What is the cross but the true circumcision of God? What is the cross but the pure and holy one, the clean one taking the place of me, the impure, unholy, unclean one where he is circumcised? where he is cut off, where he is removed. Bloody flesh. Infinite pain. Immeasurable suffering. The innocent and obedient one takes the place of the guilty and disobedient bears their uncleanness so that they may be clean. I said before the service, you measure the magnitude of a problem by measuring the magnitude of the solution. Do you think that sin is a superficial cosmetic thing that a little facelift here, a little tummy tuck there is going to take care of the problem of sin? My dear friends, if I could persuade you of anything this morning, it would be simply this. My problem is far more serious than you think it is. My problem, mine, I'm not speaking theoretically. My problem is far deeper, far more serious than you think it is. And your problem and mine together, our problem is far more serious than we tend to believe. It is profound and it is massive. And you see that in light of what it cost to find a solution. Jesus became the perfect circumcision. And by his circumcision, he has purchased forgiveness and freedom from judgment. And he has purchased the spirit of life for you, and when the spirit of life comes to you, scalpel in hand to make this incision from your neck to your navel, navel, he is doing you a kindness. Don't resist him. Let him have his way. Let him at it. Because when he cuts, he cuts as an expression of the Father's love for his children. 
Would you bear me two more minutes for a closing story? When my daughter was 10 years old, we took her to an ear, nose, and throat specialist because she had purple circles under her eyes. She was chronically getting sinus infections. We took him. He did all the tests. He did all the x-rays. He brought us into his office, and he said, here's the problem. Your daughter has a congenital defect. There is a sinus cavity in the right behind this part of the skull, and there's a little hole in it that drains down into these two sinus cavities here, and that hole isn't big enough, and all of that stuff that is supposed to drain can't because the hole isn't big enough, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a roto-rooter, and we're going to run it up her nose, and we're going to drill out that hole and make it a little bit bigger. He didn't say that. He said, here's the procedure we're going to use. I'm going to take this implement, this instrument, and I am going to go up through her nasal cavity, and I'm going to go up into that cavity right next to her brain, and I'm going to drill out that hole so that stuff can drain out of there so she doesn't ever have this infection problem again. Now, let me tell you what went through my mind in a moment after he said all of that. What went through my mind in that moment was simply this. There is no one on this planet who loves this child more than I do. So we're going to hit a pause button here and I'm going to go to medical school, and I'm going to learn how to do this procedure because there isn't anybody on this planet who will be more interested in doing it right than me. I love my daughter, and I want it done right so that she can be well and know life. Jesus has purchased the Spirit for you. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son who love you with an everlasting love. He knows what he's doing. He's done this on tens of millions of people. And when he does what he does, he does it as an expression of his love. So when he comes to you, convicts, begins to cut, begins to open you up. Know that he's doing it because he loves you. Don't fight him. Don't resist him. Stay on the table. Let him do his work. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know me. You know these people. You know how deeply and desperately needy we are. Forgive us that we resist you. Forgive us that we kick against you. Forgive us that we fight against this. God, I pray for my own hard, rebellious heart that repeatedly you would strike blows and humble me. And I pray for my friends here, my brothers and sisters, people I've not yet met. You know where they are. In grace and mercy, would you strike blows at their hard and resistant hearts so that we all together might know the life-giving circumcision of the Spirit. And dear God, I'm bold enough to pray for Tiger Woods that you break his heart 
deeply so that he might get his life back. Hear our prayers. We make them in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you sing with me number 660? Oh God, beyond all praising. <laughs>